Welcome everyone, Charles Moskowitz here. And my guest is Dr. Juliet M. Engel. And uh, Dr. Engel is the author of a book called Sparky, Surviving Sex Magic. Uh, Juliet, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Glad to be here. Okay, let me just uh, quickly give a little biographical information here. Um, and I'm looking at this on, uh, here it is. Juliet M. Engel was born into a family of intelligent operatives and initiated into the CIA's newly established Monarch program in 1955 at the age of six. Long after leaving Sex Magic, she began the Angel Coalition in Moscow, an underground railroad that rescued and repatriated child sex trafficking survivors for 10 years. Uh, now, uh, Juliet, this is an incredible story. And uh, I want to start by asking you about um, your parents and, and what they were thinking when they turned you over at age six to this program run by the CIA. Well, that had to be the greatest question of my life. I have never understood what they were thinking. And at the age of 30, when things started coming back to me, I, I had no memory of my childhood until much later. And yeah. I think that's part, that's part of the program. That's how they keep it secret. But uh, when I was 30 and after my daughter was born, you know, so here I had this imprint of myself looking back at me. It's like, what do I tell her? You know, how do I protect her? So I went to my parents and I did ask them. That's the last I ever saw them. They took off, they bought a trailer, they moved to Mexico, and they didn't speak to me again for many, many, many years until after my mother died. I did talk to my father, but it was pointless. So I know they got money for it. I, as to the rest of it, I think uh, it might be a multi-generational thing, but they remain a mystery to me. So your parents, though, worked for the, did they work for the CIA? Were they part of this Operation Monarch? Or did they just simply uh, do this to their baby, to their child? I mean, just because for money or for, um, for some other reason? I think they clearly did, uh, did work for, for that organization. I think my mother had been involved in it before I was. Uh, my uncle was one of the founders of the National Security Agency. He worked at Arlington Hall. Before that, he was with uh, SOS uh, overseas, and then right. he was one of the one of the uh, organizers of the, uh, the link between NSA and DCHQ. And uh, he had constant influence on what was happening to me. My mother and you were talking all the time. And and after this had happened, and you were turned over to this, um, you know, this experiment, basically, um, your parents still stayed in touch with you, and you still were with them, or were you removed from the home, or? No, I, I was home. I, I lived with my parents. I I didn't want to live with my parents, but now I realize it was probably a very good thing that I did, and. Uh, kids that were taken completely away from the homes, which included many of my cousins, uh, they fared much worse than most of them are dead. So, mm. um, no, I, I, I lived half, I, I can't tell because there were so many drugs involved in all of this, but I can right. document that I was in each school year, you had to attend 90 days in order to pass to the next grade. Mm -hmm. And each school year, I was there for 91 days. So 
it was a very conscious effort to keep me in school for 91 days each year. So, um, now when you say got- kept you in school, we're talking about some kind of special government CIA type school that's above and beyond regular school. No, that was regular school. So okay. in order to in order to be part of the you know regular life, I had to attend public school 91 days each year, and uh, the rest of the time mm-hmm. I was off in the in the special programs. Uh, going through their experiments and their experimental education, some of which I've, I've got uh, written up in inspired. In your book, which, that's right. Yes, what I did here was try to document, uh, as as people are becoming more aware of the plight of children in these programs, which are going on today, I wanted to give a victim's perspective, and more than a victim's perspective, a survivor's perspective, how you go through something like this how you survive, how it impacts your life, how it impacts people around you. And uh, so I focused on one year of my life. I took the age of 10. And uh, Sparky was the made-up character that I lived under during Mm -hmm. that year. And uh, I do describe in detail the experiences. It was too painful to remember the whole thing. But I focused on one year. So I do go into the details of what it's like to be a child in the Saturnalia where other children are being sacrificed and, and uh, how I survived that. And, and uh, I think clearly these things are going on right now. So people need to know about this and people need to hear from a child. And, and as an adult, I can go back and tell this as a child because, uh, you know, a child couldn't tell this. No, and also I, I, I want to. I'd like to note to my my listeners and viewers that you have a long and very credible uh, resume that includes, you know, a medical doctor, practicing physician. Uh, you've written peer-reviewed articles in medical journals. You've written books. You've, you know, you're you're well-respected, you know, person. So you've got the kind of creds that can really tell this story, and also the issue of Operation Monarch. I think that more and more information has been declassified as time has gone on with regard to CIA programs that took place after World War II in particular, such as Operation Monarch, MKUltra. You had, uh, you know, the Butterfly Program, whatever they were, they were giving LSD, that uh, people like Timothy Leary and um, Dr. Jolion West out in Los Angeles were connected to the CIA and they were giving out tabs of LSD, people on the mm-hmm. street. I mean... There was this whole, you know, massive national experiment with human beings as used as guinea pigs to see how they can alter human nature. I mean, this was, it wasn't just in the United States either. Obviously, the Soviet Union was doing it. Canada was doing it. Britain was doing it. The Tavistock Institute. I mean, this is a huge story of a whole operation, this kind of pseudoscience. It's kind of a outcropping of eugenics really where people are being altered it's 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 a you know it's a very very you know ugly story that that gets into a whole range of questions philosophically politically but we're talking about your experience here Juliet so what happened while you were basically living a double life as a child on the one yeah. hand you were going to school and you know you were seen as living in a normal situation on the other hand, you would be shipped off to this, this CIA-run program where you would have, 
your personality was shattered into many pieces and you had memory um, manipulation and, and um, mind control. Talk a little yes. bit about that. Uh, well, the trauma started right out uh, when I was three. When, uh, and and it's, it's covered in, in Sparky when I had to witness my mother being raped and they were threatening to kill my baby brother. And that was the beginning of the forgetting. They teach you to forget. You have to forget. You know, if you're going to survive, you have to forget. And that so, was by your father or by somebody else? Oh, no, no, that was by uh, a person from who, who I saw throughout the years, who uh, I know fairly recently died. Um, but he was somehow in charge of the children in uh, my, my program. And no one ever explained anything to me, you know. It's not like anyone said, this is the program you're in, you're part I of this. I understand, you're five years old. I mean, and also, right. did your parents consent to that? I mean, having some man come in and rape your mother? I mean, is that something that was part of a program or? Well, three years later, then that yeah. same person raped me in front of my father and took money for it. Made it very clear that I saw my father being paid. And after that, I'd lost faith in my mother and I would never again trust my father. So of course. There, there's a situation. So, um, and for good several, reason. Several of my cousins were actually taken out of their families and raised by strangers. I was raised in my family. And, um, well, more or less, I, I ran away when I was 17. But, um, yeah, the first thing they do is cut off your relationship with your parents. So... Um, we moved constantly because the, the ruse only worked for a short amount of time. I mean, I'd show up at school all beat up and, and chronically anemic. I'm not sure what that's from, whether, whether it was malnutrition or I was losing blood or whatever it was, but I was always anemic. And um, the school would start sending social workers. They'd start having doctors examine me. So the school district always stepped in. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that my parents moved to another state, and we started all over again. Uh, when I got to California, California was very, um, it's, it, at the time, I, I, I really attributed my survival to the, I don't call it the welfare state, but the child welfare state of California. They really took an interest in what was happening to me, and they got records from other states, and they really stepped in and tried to do things. And then my parents took me off to Canada. So uh, this was a coordinated effort, and I never totally understood what they wanted from me. Mm -hmm. I think I understand it now, but I certainly didn't then. <laughs> uh, of course not. You were a teenager at that point. And so at and, 17 years old, you ran away. What happened then? Well, I, I ran away. I, I, was at a, I was actually at Murphy Hot Springs which is outside of uh, Big Sur, Monterey area, out in this barn-like mm -hmm. thing where they were having a... Uh, there was a big tie-in to the music industry. So a yeah, it was lot a big rock of, festival at that time, right? Well, that, that was more of a, a, a... They had private parties out there for record and sex. And they made it very mm -hmm. clear that this was all related to sex magic. So it was all magic. Um, these were singers like uh, Jim Morrison and uh, John Phillips and, and uh, his, 
his partner when they formed the Journeymen and uh, people from from uh, Loving Spoonful. I mean, they mm. were they were all singing there. I didn't really know them. I was doing. I was the pretty girl in the background with lots of hair and a tambourine. Right, right. And were you like being sexually abused at that time by people? I'm sure, yes. Yes. But well, my was, big child, was the Manson family involved in this at all or not? Uh, yeah, no. That was before the Manson family. Okay. But Charlie, uh, Chuck, Chuck Manson yes. was there. He was always he was, yeah. there. He was sort of a AV guy. He was like uh, the guy who carried the instruments. He played a little bright. Right. He was an aspiring musician, exactly. And I think he got um, Brian Wilson, or not Brian, but uh, Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys for a while to take him up and let him live in his house where they, the Beach Boys produced a single for him, actually. Yeah, he, he uh, but this was before all of that, long, uh, well, long before, but several years before the murders and the Manson family and all that, you would never look at this guy. And I mean, he's the, the amorphous AV guy. And uh, right. he was usually in prison. And the summer that I got away from Murphy Hot Springs, he was out on a work release program. So he was mm -hmm. toting music instruments around. So yeah, I saw him all the time, but didn't, didn't. I didn't think he would, didn't know that he was going to end up doing the kind of crimes. Now, um, no, I, my whole intention was looking for a way to escape. And the people came in and out by helicopter, so couldn't go that way. The the Murphy Hot Springs at that time, uh, now it's some kind of big new age club or something. But mm -hmm. then it was just a hot springs and a barn and and uh, cornfields that sort of dropped off into the ocean. I think they were cornfields, some kind of, there were artichokes going out there. And um, I got away when my handler came in so high on whatever he was high on and wrecked his car. And uh, I got out, I took his car, but I had to keep him in it because I couldn't get him out and escape that way. And uh, of course, it wasn't that simple, but I I planned on getting myself up to the University of Washington, and I did. Mm -hmm. And the only, only reason I could survive up there was I've, I found all the green stamps in his car. And uh, he'd wow. been selling LSD in Monterey, and I found his money. So uh, So then you get to the University of Washington, where you eventually attend college, and you get a medical degree. Yep. yep. And it was an incredible success story, given what you went through. But and all this time, you didn't really remember who you were, because you felt that your name was Sparky McGregor, which I think was one of your personalities, part of the programming from Operation Monarch was to give you like programmed several personalities. It's kind of like the novel Sybil, which I think is is a semi-true story as well. I think, I think uh, actually watching the movie Sybil triggered a lot in me. I hadn't really uh -huh. remembered anything, but I watched the, the film and, uh, didn't relate to that exactly, but when she's walking around saying, how could they do that to me? How could they do that to me? And she doesn't understand what they've done to her. I started walking around going, how could they do that to me? How could? And then I'm like, so I, I did, I did uh, start asking my parents around that time, and that's about the time they left. But the, Sparky McGregor is an identity I left behind when mm -hmm. I left. I, my family was living on the Mexican border when I was 10. And uh, we were the apartment that was closest to Tijuana as you could get. So we were as close to Mexico as any American could be. And mm -hmm. so a lot of things happened there at the border. And I think my father was down there observing the border. And 
Sparky was the character that I became for that year, which was a terrible year, but honestly, it was the best year I had. So, uh, you'll it, it seems like every year you, as you say, you had a different identity and you'd forget the other identities. Yeah, yes. So, That's when I was incredible. in college, I used my real name, and later I did confirm that was my real name. I had to go back to Illinois and get my birth certificate and find out what my birthday really was. And um, I did that. I hired a private detective to find out who I was and confirm mm-hmm. that my name is my name and my parents That's are right, my which parents. is Juliet Engel. And your parents were named Engel. And, uh, no. Oh? That's my married name. That's your married but, name. Okay, so then you got married, had children. You've been a big success, yeah. and um, you've overcome this. Now, Juliet, you are saying that... Um, there are a lot of other people who were abused in this manner and are still being abused by this sort of what has been euphemistically called the deep state. I mean, we could you call it a lot of names, but, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, the CIA operation. Um, I think it was um, it's um, Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy professor Michael Glennon wrote a very good book on this topic. I interviewed him a while back called Double Government. We get into the politics of this and how in 1948, when President Truman established the national security state with all of its branches, there was a lot of concern around that time. In fact, uh, Secretary of the Navy Forrestal opposed it, and he ended up dying under very mysterious circumstances. I get into that in my book, Assassination in America, the speculation. But the point I'm making here is that this so-called security state has morphed into this huge uh, a semi-underground state which has its own black ops, its own yeah. means yeah. of income outside of Congress, where all over the world and which interconnects with with secret services all over the world, including the British and you know the Interpol and the Mossad and all these other secret services. And they they form this kind of interconnected deep state that that is um, has its tentacles in just about every aspect of our life. Mm-hmm. So you know, again, I refer to Michael Glennon here. He's a professor at Tufts. He's a you know very well respected person. He was a, he was a chief counsel of the U.S. Senate under Obama. You know, this is an establishment guy who wrote this, and this same state is what was doing these really really ugly human experiments after nineteen uh, after World War Two, including the introduction of LSD on the street by people, as I said, like Julian Julian West. And um, and Timothy Leary, and uh, kind of mass manipulation and, and and the changing of society, the development of the medical state, if you will. Um, your contention is that it's still going on. How many people are still in, out there? I mean, you know, you know, it's a, it's a, this is a, a crime against humanity. Obviously, what do you what can you tell us about what's happening with this now? I only know what I, you know, research, what I hear from from people like you. But I do know that uh, during the course of the time that I was in the program, what I've seen from being overseas, I lived in Russia for nearly 20 years, looking back Mm -hmm. on what's happening in the United States. uh, I think that probably most of the children that were inducted into these programs died. I think uh, there was a lot of child sacrifice going on. I've been to blood rituals. I've had a child sacrificed in front of me and had her blood smeared on my head, which was one of the worst things that ever happened to me in my life. Um, 
it, it, it was going on. That would be in 1959, 1960. I doubt if anything has changed. Um, then the number of, of, they had what was called the freedom train. So as you move through this program as a, as a teenager, uh, when they got tired of you or they didn't want you anymore or you weren't useful to them, you'd ride the freedom train. And that was mm-hmm. just a, that's how you got people drug overdosing and because you, you uh, die of drugs, you jump out of the freedom train. And uh, a lot of people were doing that, and I refused to do that. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I don't know why I lived through this and, and other people didn't. Um, I had a lot yeah, of talents. Yeah, well, that's, that's the other thing I want to say is that there yeah. are a lot of people like me, and some of them have started coming forward since I've written Sparky and put it out there. Good. Because, you know, it took a lot of guts to put Sparky out there. Yes, I, it did. I, I didn't have to do this. I could have stayed hugely successful, um, uh, top of my game, you know, if, if I played along. But I'm, I can't do that. I can't lie right. about this. And so Sparky went out there. And other people have come forward, people in very high positions that you would know. And uh, they're talking to me and, and wondering how. No, you're, you a, you're a classic definition of a whistleblower, and you're doing it very publicly, and it's very courageous of you. And I think that we all owe a great debt of gratitude for you um, for your doing this. Now, now do well, you think that, Yeah. You have to speak up for the victims. And, and these little kids, I mean, as smart as oh, I am and as, right. driving, yeah. as a child, I couldn't speak up. I tried, and no one believed me. And... Um, so what a child can do is either learn to forget or just completely lose it and die. And, and, uh, no, we can't, what kind of people are we to let this happen? No. And I think the problem is probably, I mean, this, this program as it were is probably even bigger than, than, than you or I could even know, because it, again, it's, we're talking about a secret program here that might have international connections. Now, do you think there's any connection between, this Operation Monarch and this turning children into like sex slaves, basically, and sex trafficking, Absolutely. and Absolutely. Um, and the Bohemian Grove in in California. I don't know about Bohemian Grove. I was never there, uh, um, but as to children being brought into this program and turned into sex slaves and then sacrificed or whatever else they want to do because they're helpless. Yeah. The, yeah, that's happening. For sure it's happening. And what about the uh, Franklin cover-up? Do you know about that with uh, Larry King, yeah. the talk show host? There yeah. was. Uh, it's an interesting... I interviewed the author of that book a while ago. I should have him back. I don't know if he's still doing anything. But that was a case where children were being abducted around the country and they were being used basically as sex slaves by, in this case, kind of a Republican establishment. And there was this whole underground of both male and female sex slaves. Um and I think also, is there a tie-in with Jeffrey Epstein and his, oh, uh, you know, his Lolita Island where he had um, underage women uh, there and people all over the world being jet-setted in, including the Clintons and, you know, Prince Andrew of England and a lot of other big-name people? I met uh, Jeffrey Epstein in, must have been 1988, and uh, I was I was in the up in the San Juan Islands, 
at a at a very famous author's house, and she had a little gathering, and mm-hmm. uh, all these operatives, these young hot guys with their leather jackets, came flying in on their own planes. These were the Iran Iran Contra pilots, and Jeffrey Epstein was one of them. And mm-hmm. uh, he spoke to me. He wanted at that time I was um, running an ultrasound lab at. Uh, at a hospital in Seattle and uh, doing a lot of very cutting edge research on uh, ultrasonography. And he wanted to hire me to go. He said, he explained that they were starting this island resort and it would be for heads of state and very important people. And uh, could I hide communication in medical transmission? And I said, sure, yeah, you could do that. And uh, he wanted to hire me to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he wanted to give me this beautiful house in in uh, on San Juan Island, and uh, but I would have to have left my children. You know that was that was the deal. I, it was uh, it was a crazy thing. I wanted no part of it, and and uh, had no further communication. But uh, I did meet him back in 1988, and that's when they were obviously starting this this plan. And, uh, yeah, they didn't talk about child trafficking to me. That would have been uh, a game ender right there. And I wanted nothing to do with it. But um, clearly that was their plan. That's what they were, that's what they were starting to do. And why did, they, con- why did they contact you, Juliet? Well, what, well, what made you? Because, because I was on the cutting edge of uh, ultrasound. Uh, digital technology, and I'd written papers on it and presentations. I had patents, and uh, they wanted they wanted me to work for them. But they but they didn't know your past. I wonder if they did. Oh, I, who I, knows? I think I think probably they did. Okay. Because I think that, I think that the people that are that got sucked into this, you know, they, he had physicians working for him at the ranch in in New Mexico. He had physicians working for him on that island. I, I think he that they probably have operations like this on multiple islands, and and I, I think around the world. What, yeah, and I think what he was approaching me for was to set that up in San. I don't know if you know the San Juan Islands, but they're beautiful no. islands up between Canada and Washington State, and they're fairly remote and uh, very, you know. Good place to do some funny business. And also there's apparently this island off the coast of Italy that was part of this. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein also was very connected to this, to the uh, more local to me, the, the MIT Media Lab. And this, oh, sure. this head of it, which basically had to resign because he accepted a lot of money from Jeffrey Epstein and didn't declare as such. But the reason Jeffrey Epstein was giving money to the Media Lab at MIT was because he was promoting this idea of transhumanism. And mm-hmm. this this professor who had to resign, his name escapes me right now, I should have looked it up, but he uh, he's written papers on transhumanism that you can look up. And so it's still on the, I think it's still on the MIT website. I was, I did this research a while back. And this whole idea is to create a new, it's kind of a new eugenics. It's sort of mm-hmm. a new form of, of Darwinianism. They want to create a new man by perfecting the human being through computer components and, and this stuff. It's very Orwellian and it's, uh, it's very troubling. I wonder how much that is connected to this whole CIA operation that goes back to what you were doing. 
with Operation Very Monarch much. back in the 40s. Very much. When I was in high school, I went to, for two years, I went to uh, Palo Alto High School, which is right across the street from Stanford University and just mm -hmm. a couple blocks from the, the Hoover Institution, which is the, the, the big library there. And sure. I would go over there for classes. This would, this would be my programming classes. A programming room. Yeah, for, through Stanford Research Institute. And I spent a lot of time there. And one of the things they were uh, sort of teaching was the combination of humans and computers. And at the time, uh, nobody had heard of a computer. They were still called Turing machines. Mm -hmm. And but that was the goal. It was cybernetics. Cybernetics being uh, humans. Uh, being coming part part machine, so the computer is integrated into the human being, or the human being is integrated into the computer, and yes, it's very much part of that, and uh, that's exactly what uh, uh, Epstein alluded to was like using the electronics to mo to. All right, I seem to be having a little bit of a computer freeze here. Maybe the uh, <laughs> maybe somebody has tampered with it. I don't know. Let's see what happens. No, 